So we now come to our final lesson in this series dealing with God's covenant with man. Over the last few weeks, we have spent time discussing what covenants are and all the different forms or types of covenants that we have seen throughout the scripture. Now, by way of review, we have seen the fact of what I call that overarching covenant, that covenant of redemption, which if you remember, we defined as that agreement primarily between the father and the son made before the world was created, where the father sets apart a people for whom Christ is sent by the father who would be, excuse me, the head and redeemer of. Christ, in turn, would do all that was necessary to secure the redemption of that elect people. So we see, as we look through the Bible, the understanding that there is this overarching covenant, this covenant of redemption, through which all the other covenants that we now will look into, covenant of works and covenant of grace, have their understanding. We saw a couple of weeks ago in the covenant of, of works, that agreement, again, between God and Adam, who was acting as our federal head, where life was promised to him and his posterity upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience, which was encapsulated in the command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we saw this being highlighted. And if you recall, I mentioned the fact that in this covenant itself, what happened? Adam fell. He sinned. And immediately after Adam sinned and eating the forbidden fruit, then we see the introduction of what we know as the covenant of grace in seed form, but then being expounded on throughout the rest of scripture. And just by way of review, the covenant of grace, again, is that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending elect sinner through Christ, who in this covenant is acting as our federal head, our representative, in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ. And the sinner accepts this believingly promising a life of faith and obedience. So these are the covenants that we see, and in particular with this covenant of grace, we see this working itself out throughout the rest of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Now, as, we've, as I've stated a few weeks ago, this is over and against the prevailing understanding that we see throughout most, in most um, churches today, dispensationalism. And if you recall, we talked about the fact that over and against that, we believe that they're not multiple peoples of God or differing forms of salvation, but rather there's one people and one plan of salvation, faith in Christ alone. Now, how that plan works itself out from a substance standpoint doesn't change, but what does change is in regards to the substance Christ itself, who the covenant centers itself around. And being that the covenant of grace centers itself around Christ, what we read taking place in the Old Testament and what we see taking place now is different, not because something changed in Christ, but because what he was assigned to do, initially in the covenant of redemption, is actually accomplished in the pages of the new. In the old, Christ had not yet arrived. So all the sacrifices, the temple practices, circumcision, and promises were pointing to him. 
in the new, the promised redeemer, Jesus Christ, does arrive. And he fulfills all that was necessary for our salvation. So since Jesus Christ has been clearly revealed, the Old Testament's types and shadows are no longer necessary. Therefore, the practices and sacraments that we see in the New Testament are different. Since we are no longer in this period of anticipation, waiting for the Messiah to come and complete his work of redemption, but now we're in this period of commemoration, looking back at what he did. Now, last Lord's Day, we focused our time on the old administration of the covenant of grace to see what was given to them, to have their eyes looking forward to Christ to come. We're going to spend the rest of this lecture today looking at the new administration of the covenant of grace to see what's different now that Christ has arrived. So with that being said, you know, when you study and look at the history of Israel, from the time of Moses until the time of Christ, what you notice is that it was not one where they were faithful throughout. Not that long, as a matter of fact, after they received the law from Moses, we see them falling into idolatry, worshiping a golden calf. When they enter into the land of Canaan, they didn't keep it pure from idols, false worship, and false worshipers. When God sets up a king to rule over them, what do we see happening time after time after time again? It's the king's giving in to idolatry. So what happens? We see through their faithlessness, finally God punishes them by having them go into captivity, first with Israel and eventually with Judah. Now, while they're in captivity, we see the prophet Jeremiah making this prophetical statement in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, where we read him say this, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will remember no, no longer. What we see in this passage is God, through the prophet Jeremiah, promising a new covenant. Now, he goes on to specify, we saw in verse 32, that this covenant will not be like the one that was made with their fathers on the day that they were brought out of the land of Egypt. So right out the gate, as we see this and as we read this, that ought to raise our attention. What covenant is being referred to here? Well, let's think about this. What was the covenant that God established with them after being led out of Egypt? That wasn't an Abrahamic covenant. Certainly wasn't a Noahic covenant. No, it was the Mosaic covenant. So immediately, we ought to be aware that this newness that's being referred to in this covenant is not something different from the promise that was given to Abraham, but rather something different from the covenant that was given to Moses. 
let's ask ourselves, what exactly was it that was given to Moses? Well, was the law, the ceremonial law in particular, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the priesthood. If you remember from what we talked about last week, all of these were given pre-Christ to point the Jews to Christ. Like Paul says in Galatians 3, it was the tutor to lead them to Christ. But it never negated the original promise given by Abraham. Now, was all of this effective to actually grant them salvation? No. We saw that in Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats could not actually deal with sin. That was why it was given each and every year. It did not actually accomplish the redemption. So God is promising that he will effect a new covenant, different from the one given to Moses that they were unable to keep, evidenced by the fact that he's given it to them while they're in captivity because of their disobedience. This covenant would be one in which the law would be written on their hearts and their sins will finally be dealt with. This covenant that Jeremiah is talking about is pointing to the work that is done by Christ himself. Matter of fact, we see Jesus alluding to this fact when he institutes the Lord's Supper. We see in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, for example, and in the same way, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. In Christ, all the things that the ceremonial law was pointing to was accomplished in him. We see in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 14 through 20, the author writing this, for by one offering, Christ has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, and he goes on to quote from Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. So again, in Christ, those sins were actually dealt with. The blood and bull and goats could not affect actual redemption, but Christ in his sacrifice, offering up his body, could. John Gill a Baptist minister, to show that this isn't just a Presbyterian thing, but really and truly a biblical thing, he writes in regards to the covenant and it being called new, that it's called new, and, and I quote, not because it was newly made, for it was with the elect in Christ from everlasting. So early was Christ set up as the meteor of it, and so early were promises made and blessings given to them in him, nor because newly revealed, for it was made known to all the saints, more or less under the former dispensation, particularly to David, to Abraham, yeah, to our parents, immediately after the fall, though more clearly manifested under the gospel dispensation, but because of its new mode of exhibition, not by types and shadows and sacrifices as formerly, but by the ministry of the word and the administration of the gospel ordinances. And in distinction from the former covenant, which is done away, as to the mode of it, 
And because it is a famous covenant, an excellent one, a better covenant, best of all, better than the covenant of works, and even better than the covenant of grace under the former administration, in the clear manifestation and extensive application of it, and in the ratification of it by the blood of Christ. So this new covenant or new administration of the one covenant of grace presents more clearly the redemption that we have in Christ. It is no longer in shadow form like we see in the old. The shadows and times were necessary at that time to draw their eyes to Christ to come. But now that Christ has arrived and effected a better, more perfect covenant of necessity, those types and shadows attributed to the old administration of the covenant of grace had to change. This is exactly what our confession says in chapter 7, section 6, where the divines write, under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word of God and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. So again, in the new covenant, Christ, the substance of the covenant of grace, is presented in more fullness, in more evidence, and in more spiritual efficacy. In the new covenant, rather than having the prophets and a portion of God's revelation, we have the entire counsel, the entire revealed will of God in the Bible, the New Old and New Testament. In the New Covenant, rather than having the outward sign of circumcision given to those males who profess faith and their sons, we have the sign of baptism given to all those who profess faith and their children. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. In the New Covenant, Rather than having the sacrifices, the annual feasts, including Passover, the priesthood, the physical temple, which were all pointing to Christ, we have the weekly Lord's Supper done in remembrance of Christ. You have the bread representing his body, which was actually broken for us. You have the wine, which represents his blood, which was actually shed for us. Now, while the Lord's Supper may not have the same outward pizzazz like the Passover of old, it certainly had more inward efficacy. In the new covenant, the Gentiles who were in the old, as Paul says it in Ephesians 2, verse 12, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, they're now no longer aliens, no longer strangers to the covenant, but fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, we do see allusions to the inclusion of the Gentiles made. I think a good example would be Jonah and Nineveh. But we see it more clearly displayed and manifested in the new. The dietary restrictions that we see in the old, which help to serve as a distinction between Jews and Gentiles, are no longer in place. As Peter heard in the vision in Acts 10, verse 15, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Also, while there was always a gracious element in the Old Covenant, because again, remember, they were saved by grace through faith in Christ. 
It is more fully and clearly emphasized in the new covenant. We see Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, we can't forget the saints in the Old Testament were always saved by grace through faith in Christ. That was always the case. However, with the laws that they were required to keep under the old covenant, there was a burden that was felt by them. And in the new covenant, that burden has been fully removed because Christ has arrived. We see Paul referencing this in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, where he says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. They were truly heirs. They were heirs according to the promise. But they were held in bondage until Christ comes. John Calvin in his institutes, I think, puts it very, very well when he says this. The Old Testament filled the conscience with fear and trembling. The new inspires it with gladness. By the former, the conscience is held in bondage. By the latter, it is manumitted and made free. If it be objected that the Holy Fathers among the Israelites, as they were endued with the same spirit of faith, must also have been partakers of the same liberty and joy, we answer that neither was derived from the law, but feeling that by the law they were oppressed like slaves and vexed with a disquieted conscience, they fled for refuge to the gospel. And accordingly, the peculiar advantage of the gospel was that contrary to the common rule of the Old Testament, it exempted those who were under it from those evils. Then again, we deny that they did possess the spirit of liberty and security in such a degree as not to experience some measure of fear and bondage. For however they might enjoy the privilege which they have obtained through the grace of the gospel, they were under the same bonds and burdens of observances as the rest of the, their nation. Therefore, seeing they were obliged to the anxious observance of ceremonies, they are justly said to have been, comparatively, under a covenant of fear and bondage in respect of that common dispensation under which the Jewish people were then placed. So again, they were heirs, but yet, until Christ came, they were held under bondage. The bondage of the law was removed with the arrival of Christ. So with the new covenant, the fact that we are no longer required or no longer under bondage, excuse me, is more clearly displayed. What's required in the new covenant is not as tedious and burdensome as in the old to more clearly remind us that Christ has come and fulfilled all that was necessary for our redemption. And thus we must always look to Christ for our justification. In the old, the saints' eyes were looking at all that they had to do and were being taught what their Messiah needed to do to truly affect salvation for them. In the new, Christ arrived, he came and did what needed to be done. So we don't need to figure out what needed to happen. We already know and need to remember that fact. The new covenant forces us to look to Christ, 
to look to what he came and what he did, not hope for what he will do. Now, although there is only one way of salvation and one covenant of grace, it is clear that within that one covenant of grace, how it's administered is different in relation to the substance Jesus Christ. One administration points to Christ, the other looks back at him. In the new covenant, rather than having the sacrifices and feasts and circumcision and Passover and the priests and prophets, we have the word, we have baptism, we have the supper. Certainly more simple and admittedly less painful for us men, but it carries with it more efficacy because we more clearly see who it is we are hoping in. The Old Testament saints did see who they were to trust in and receive just justification as a result of that. But there was a veil placed during that time. That veil is no longer there with us. As the hymn writer says, we know whom we have believed in. We know the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ. So as we bring all of this to a close, we have seen over the last few weeks, we have seen with the covenant of redemption, with the covenant of works, and with the covenant of grace. The plan of salvation being providentially laid out with the covenant of redemption, we saw before the world was created, the triune God establishing the plan of redemption and the role that each member of the Godhead was to fulfill. The Father electing, the Son redeeming, the Holy Spirit applying that redemption. In the covenant of works, we see man plunging himself into the state of sin and misery and thus necessitating the plan redeemer to come. In the covenant of grace, we see that plan redemption being promised to us and eventually being accomplished to us by Christ. See, these covenants that God establishes highlight the wisdom of God as well as the love of God in a very unique way. We see God's wisdom being displayed by how through the covenants, God's eternal plan of redemption gets perfectly accomplished. We see the love of God being displayed by how redemption gets accomplished. Because it's not by us figuring out what we need to do or doing anything on our own to merit salvation, but it's by God loving us enough to take on human flesh and be the Passover lamb, to have his blood shed for our sins, to be our federal head through whom we obtain redemption. See, the divines so rightly stated when they said that we could never have any fruition of God as our blessedness and he as our reward, but by some voluntary condescension on his part. That he was pleased to do and that we see he did do. And we see that expressed through these covenants. So this concludes our lesson for today.